Hakeem Adi is professor of history and the most prominent and preeminent scholar of blacks in the UK. He is the author of several titles, including Black British History, New Perspectives, West Africans in Britain, 1900 to 1960, and the focus of this episode, The Essential and Illuminating Academic Survey, Pan-Africanism, A History. In this conversation, Addy discusses the roots of Pan-Africanism, sheds light on some of the unheralded figures in this history, and shares some of his efforts to bring more young scholars of color into the field. This is how we recollect. Good morning, good morning, good morning. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Greetings from across the pond. Thank you so much for... Thanks for uh, getting up so early. It is my pleasure. I would get up at any time of day to be able to have this conversation with you because it really is that important, especially since the, the Recollect platform is about celebrating the study of Pan-African history and culture, seeing as you are one of the most regarded and respected scholars in Pan-African studies, yes, I would get up any time to have this conversation. That's very kind of you to say so, very kind. So if, if it's okay with you, just want to kind of do an academic buffet, for lack of a better phrase, just to get your thoughts on key figures and moments in Pan-African history. Also get your thoughts on contemporary Pan-Africanism and also hear from you your perspective on what other things need to be studied by future scholars. So if it's okay, can we start off with your definition of Pan-Africanism? I know that you mentioned other terms that other scholars are using, Black internationalism at various times, Ethiopianism, but in your estimation, how would you define Pan-Africanism? Well, Pan-Africanism, I guess, is an idea, an ideology, a a movement in history concerned with the unity and liberation of Africa and the African diaspora. I think I say in the book that I think of it like a mighty river with many streams and tributaries. And so it's, although I think of it as one river, As I say, there are many different streams and tributaries according to time and place and the particular problems which Africans faced. But it's really um, Africans coming together to address the particular challenges which faced them at any particular time in history. And one can give, you know, all kinds of examples of that coming together in order to deal with those challenges and to achieve achieve liberation. I think probably one of the first examples I give is of the Haitian Revolution as a Pan-African enterprise, you could say. Um, but there are many others. And obviously in that enterprise at the end of the 18th century, Africans from many parts of the continent who had been violently and forcibly transported to another place, uh, reorganized themselves 
irrespective of language, national origin, worldview, outlook, religious belief, and so on. They, they came together, united, in order to achieve their liberation and successfully achieve that liberation and then to some degree put it at the disposal of other Africans globally. And incidentally also gave the world the first sort of modern conception of human rights, which they enshrined in the Haitian constitution, which is very important and probably the most, in some ways, when I say the most revolutionary act, but a more revolutionary act, you could say, that was uh, that emerged from the French Revolution or the American Revolution or the other revolutions of the 18th century. So that would be an example of, of Pan-Africanism. Obviously, the word, the term didn't exist at that time. It wasn't used to describe the revolution and may not be used today. But I think it's quite a good example and and thereafter Haiti became a kind of symbol of pan-African struggle or pan-African icon we can say and to some degree it still occupies that position today in the world and in relation to the African Union which is a modern manifestation of pan-Africanism and revolutionary Haiti and the African Union are we can say two distant streams, as, as it were, but they flow into and out of this one mighty river. So. The Blue Nile and the White Nile, so to speak. Now, would you call the Haitian Revolution the earliest example of Pan-Africanism in action? Or would you go earlier to Maroon communities and Palenques and Quilombos and things of that nature? Yeah, other examples are, of pan-Africanism. There are earlier there are earlier manifestations of it, um, sure. And those examples you gave are are some of those examples. And there are well-known ones like, you know, the Republic of Palmares in Brazil in the century before. There are even earlier examples in, particularly in Europe, actually in. Spain and Portugal and elsewhere, Africans organized together in fraternities, brotherhoods to assist each other and to assist in the liberation of, of other Africans. So these are types of Pan-African activity in the sense that Africans of different origins coming together to liberation. So, and there are other examples of you know, African church movements in North America or organizations like the Sons of Africa in Britain, which is another also 18th century example. So there are many examples and all of these examples kind of emerge from the forcible dispersion of Africans throughout the world. So kind of the modern diaspora and and no doubt there are earlier examples as well in, in other parts of the world, in Western Asia, and no doubt other examples. I mean, one of the features of, you could say, modern Pan-Africanism, which is present, not always present, but often present, is the recognition of 
Africanness. So say it's not always present, but often this identification with Africa, as in the Sons of Africa in London being a, a notable example of that. Equiano. Yeah, the writing of the writing and activities of people like Alado Equiano, Otto Guano, and others who deliberately styled themselves Africans. You know, they they said the title of Equiano's narrative autobiography included the the self-designation the African and anyway that's very noticeable clearly they were Africans but they emphasized their Africanness and that they were connected with the continent and they were concerned not just with their locality London or Britain but they were concerned first of all to speak for all Africans and concerned with those challenges which faced it faced Africans in general human trafficking, enslavement, and so on and so forth. There were several early efforts by Africans in the diaspora to return to the African continent. In 1792, Thomas Peters, born in Africa, enslaved and then self-liberated during the American War of Independence, led over 1,000 black loyalists from Nova Scotia in Canada to the new British colony of Sierra Leone, where they continued to agitate for their rights and even self-government. The Nova Scotians also began to speak of themselves as Africans, and it might be said that they also began to develop a pan-African consciousness. In part, this was based on their common experience of enslavement and of the slave system, but it was also based on knowledge of the world around them. They lived in a period where there were many large-scale rebellions culminating in the Haitian Revolution. In the early 1770s, for example, there were three major rebellions of Africans against the slave system in Suriname, Jamaica, and St. Vincent. The rebellion in Suriname involved tens of thousands of Africans and Amerindians, and all three were widely reported in the North American press. There is therefore evidence of the development of an embryonic Pan-African consciousness, based not only on a common experience, but also a common demand for liberty. So, there are different characteristics and manifestations of um, Pan-Africanism in this period before the term was actually first employed, which I suppose was really at the end of the 19th century. But they're all connected with, yeah, Africans trying to to come together to meet the particular challenges which they faced, largely as a result of human trafficking, enslavement, forced migration, racism in its kind of modern forms, um, and the denial of the humanity of Africans and so on. So to take another example from Equiano. Equiano is quite a good example because in Britain we think he's British, in the US (laughs) he's American and in the Caribbean people probably think he's Caribbean and in Nigeria people think he's Nigerian so we're not upsetting anybody. Um, But yeah, I mean Equiano is a good example of dealing with this anti-African racism. You could say 
first by writing and presenting a vision of what I sometimes call the thinking Africa, which is not to say that all Africans don't think, because of course all Africans do think, but it's in opposition to the idea that Africans were not human or not fully human or not conscious or not didn't have the same feelings and sentiments and ideas and so on as other human beings. So through his writing and the writing of other Africans, they demonstrated clearly this, what the case was and undermined the anti-African racism of the day. And Equiano went further in the sense that he presented this almost idyllic picture of an African, his own society or whether it was his own or not is something that mm-hmm. some historians like to argue about. But if, he, if it wasn't his own, then it's a remarkable uh, example of effective propaganda and collective activity. Um, and probably the book was written collectively to some degree, or maybe perhaps to a large degree. But anyway, he presented this picture of Africa, which was again in opposition to anti-African racism and presented a society which was um, you could say under the rule of law had its own morals its own its own ethics its own in many ways more developed if one wants to use that term than the one he found himself in in, in 18th century britain so that kind of activity was also a very important aspect of Pan-Africanism, as we can call it, in its its broadest sense, and you know, continued and continues to this day, unfortunately, because it's still necessary to to operate in that way. It is still necessary, unfortunately. We can ask any of the Haitian immigrants at the U.S. border about the reality of racism and its continued power. Yeah. In fact, only the other day I was, I think it might even have been yesterday or the day before, quite by accident, I was watching some program on television, as I say, quite by accident, this program came on about New Orleans and Katrina. And I reflected that, or it was a the kind of program where they, you know, they interview residents of New Orleans and various people at the time, Kanye West or whoever else, I can't remember who else was in the program. But it was it was actually a very powerful program. And though I remember Katrina at the time and what went on and it kind of brought it home very vividly once again. <laughs> I mean there are so many reminders of the kind of nature of the US that this is just a thoroughly racist to the core. And you know, when you see it, however many years later we are now, in the way the program presented it, it's kind of unbelievable, really. You kind of have to shake your head in amazement that such things can go on in the 21st century. But anyway, that's a bit of a diversion, as it were. But It's unbelievable, but not at all surprising no, to many no in the U.S. But sometimes, as I say, you see these things and you make your analysis and you denounce the US government. And, but then you kind of look again. And you just, I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's just like 
George Floyd or any of these things. You just you're not surprised, but you're shocked. That's the issue. You're you're still shocked that and, and, and in outraged. this day and age, these things can go on. And you know, anyway, I, I suppose with um, Katrina or similar. I mean, there are there are so many examples. But anyway, it's just. Uh, shows the the necessity to the the struggles that people waged in the 18th century and 19th century and 20th century are still ongoing and um yeah as fred douglas said without struggle there's no progress so we have to keep struggling power concedes nothing without a demand never has and never will that's right The first gathering to be described as Pan-African was the Congress on Africa, held in Chicago in August 1893, and attended by Frederick Douglass, Henry McNeil Turner, Alexander Crummel, Alexander Walters of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, Hallie Q. Brown, former principal of Tuskegee Institute, and T. Thomas Fortune, the African-American editor of the New York Age who later claimed to have conceived, although not implemented, the idea of holding a Pan-African Congress. African Americans were well represented, continental Africans less so, and the overall orientation of the Congress retained the Eurocentric notion of the African as subject rather than agent and the need to bring civilization and commerce to Africa from the outside. The Congress therefore included presentations from, quote, well-educated blacks, as well as elite and middle-class whites, end quote. Even here, however, resistance to such Eurocentric thinking was evident, and Bishop Turner declared that Africans were the original humans from whom both civilization and Europeans were descended. The Congress also discussed the controversial question of African-American immigration to Africa. Pan was a term that was banded around at that time in the world. It was, you know, people talked about Pan-American or Pan-Islam or Pan-Slav, perhaps most well-known term um, that we tend perhaps not to use these terms today. But it was first used um, as a sort of official designation of an event in London for the first Pan-African Conference in 1900, which was organized by the London-based African Association, which had been formed three years previously. And that association was established largely by two people, one who's become relatively well-known, who was Henry Sylvester Williams, who was a Trinidadian lawyer based in London at that time. And the other person is less well known and perhaps more important. And her name was Alice Kinlock. And she was a South African woman who was touring Britain at the time on a, on a lecture tour, defending the rights of her compatriots in South Africa. And she inspired Sylvester Williams and others to create the African Association and to launch the 
preparations for the for the first Pan-African conference in 1900. So although people talk about various fathers of Pan-Africanism, whether Du Bois or Krumah or whoever, the, we could say the mother of, Pan of modern Pan-Africanism is, is Alice Kinloch, again, a figure who's hardly known. I'm not sure, there are photos of her, I'm not sure I've ever seen one, but there are apparently some very bad photos of her in South Africa. Little is known of Kinloch's motives for traveling to Britain, but her important role was made clear by Williams who wrote that, quote, the association is the result of Mrs. Kinloch's work in England and the feeling that as British subjects, we ought to be heard in our own affairs, end quote. Kinloch herself explained that, quote, with some men of my race in this country, I have formed a society for the benefit of our people in Africa, end quote. Although the association claimed that no one not of African descent could be a member, it also appears that the treasurer of the association was Frank Colenso, the son of the Anglican Bishop of Natal, who was of European, not African descent, but who, like his father, was a strong campaigner for the rights of the Zulu and other Africans in South Africa. The other officers and committee members were mainly law students or lawyers from the Caribbean and West Africa. So anyway, she is, she is the mother, and the African Association, the, her creation, or joint creation, and that gave rise to that first conference with the aim where the term Pan-African was used. And in fact, the African Association, in the course of its proceedings, changed its name to the Pan-African Association and produced a, a journal called Pan-Africa. So that really put this term, we can say, on the map um, and established it as the term to, to be used, one could say, to discuss these phenomena. And as you mentioned in my book, I say, well, of course, some people in the US want to use another term, <laughs> black internationalism. And I don't know why. Why do you want to use another term? Um, because for the last century and a bit, everyone's used Pan-Africanism. Everybody knows what it means, that it has these different aspects to it. People refer to themselves as Pan-Africanists. Um, they call their conferences Pan-African. Nobody has ever called themselves a black internationalists, I don't think, that I'm aware of. Anyway, I'm kind of making fun of my friends in the US. <laughs> Well, it's it's not like we haven't earned it, so. <laughs> so. But anyway, so this is the that was the term that was developed, and that first conference included people obviously based in Britain, as the the kind of center of the world's biggest empire. People from Africa, from the Caribbean, mainly Anglophone, although there were people there, uh, most notably Benito Silvan from from Haiti, and of course also. In, included um, African-Americans, the most notable being W.E.B. Du Bois, though there were others, including um, several women delegates from the, from the U.S. So that was the, you can say, the beginnings, really, of modern Pan-Africanism. I always say that Pan-Africanism was developed in Britain. Um, and, of course, most of the most, many of the most important congresses were also held, held in Britain. 
largely because of its imperial or imperialist, it might be better to say imperialist nature. Um, and at that first conference in 1900, Du Bois was a significant contributory figure. Um, the phrase, you know, the problem of the problem of the 20th century, whatever it is, the problem of the color line, I think, was mm -hmm. yes. utilized at that gathering. And Du Bois was involved in the major declaration of um, the first Pan-African conference. And then obviously, later on, he kind of took up the, the baton by organizing his own series of Pan-African Congresses, or I say organizing, most of the organizing was done by women, but he led the organizing of those other Congresses, which began in, in 1919. W.E.B. Du Bois had emerged as a leading Pan-Africanist during the London Conference in 1900. However, three years earlier, he had written of the need for what he referred to as a, quote, pan-Negroism led by African-Americans in his well-known essay, The Conservation of Races. At the time, he had written, quote, if the Negro is ever to be a factor in the world's history, end quote, it would be because of the efforts of, quote, black hands fashioned by black heads and hallowed by the travail of 200 million black hearts beating in one glad song of jubilee. In his essay, he stated, quote, we, as American Negroes, are resolved to strive in every honorable way for the realization of the best and highest aims for the development of strong manhood and pure womanhood, and for the rearing of a race ideal in America and Africa to the glory of God and the uplifting of the Negro people. End quote. Certainly, Du Bois had become one of the key African-American political figures, known for the publication of seminal works such as The Souls of Black Folk, the creation of the Niagara Movement in 1907, and the founding of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in 1911. Du Bois also became the influential editor of the NAACP's publication The Crisis. For African-American advancement, he initially imagined a leadership of those referred to as the, quote, talented 10th, those who had received the benefit of higher education. As he expressed in 1903, quote, the Negro race, like all races, is going to be saved by its exceptional men, end quote. Responding to criticism, he later sought to change this aristocratic view. In 1915, for example, he expressed the view that, quote, the Pan-African movement, when it comes, will not, however, be merely a narrow racial propaganda. Already, the more far-seeing Negroes sense the coming unities, a unity of the working classes everywhere, a unity of colored races, a new unity of men. Although undoubtedly still a very male-centered approach, this was a significant change. Such change and development continued throughout Du Bois's long life. Eventually, 57 participants from Africa, the Caribbean, and the United States made their way to Paris, although most were already residing in France, and both the British and French colonies in Africa were represented by a single delegate. Twelve delegates represented nine African countries. 
Liberia had three delegates, including a future president, and constituted the largest African delegation. Twenty-one delegates represented the Caribbean, including 13 from the French Antilles, and 16 delegates came from the United States. The president of the London-based APU, John Archer, also attended and spoke at the Paris Congress. Archer had first met Du Bois at the 1900 Pan-African Congress in London and would play a significant role in the next two Congresses. Another speaker who would in future play a significant role was Eddie Waits Hunton, who had been in France with African-American troops and was one of the authors of Two Colored Women with American Expeditionary Forces and who, the following year, became one of the founders of the International Council of Women of the Darker Races of the World. She reminded the predominantly male Congress of the important role of women and urged the participants to consider, quote, the necessity of seeking their cooperation and counsel. So that's, you know, how the modern movement, or the modern Congress movement developed. But of course, um, there, there were always key figures who were sort of outside of um outside of the established Congress movement. I think in the the first conference, Booker T. Washington was just about around and I think had been consulted, but was not a participant. Edward Blyden was also kind of around, but was not involved. And in the, the later Du Boisian Congresses, the key absentee, as it were, was, was Marcus Garvey, the famous Jamaican Pan-Africanist who was probably the leading figure of the day, but had a, an antipathy to Du Bois, well, they had an antipathy to each other. So Pan-Africanism has always been bigger than, you know, whatever official congress or whatever major conference or event may be, be held and, you know, involves the kind of activities and strivings and communications between a whole range of people and in fact between the 1900 conference and the 1919 congress there's this kind of whole network of people who were in touch with each other in britain in the us in caribbean in africa who worked together corresponded together contributed to each other's publications and of course, because the, the challenges facing Africans in that period were so acute, not only the colonial conquest, division, redivision of Africa before and after the First World War, but also the anti-African racism, terrorism, we can call it in the US, similar racism in, in Britain. France and other countries and the general nature of colonial rule in Africa, the Caribbean and elsewhere. So those were the kind of key issues that were confronting those Pan-Africanists who were organizing in that period and continued to, to exercise the minds, minds, thoughts, actions of Pan-Africanists throughout much of the, the 20th century and perhaps even, even beyond. 
The man who would become the most significant figure during the period of the First World War and after was the Jamaican journalist, writer, trade unionist, and activist Marcus Garvey, who first established his Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League in Jamaica in 1914. It seems likely that Amy Ashwood, Garvey's first wife, may have been the UNIA's first member and secretary, but as the organization was launched before she met Garvey, claims for joint founding may not be appropriate. The early Jamaican UNIA was concerned with social and economic, quote, upliftment, and it soon adopted the famous motto, One God, One Aim, One Destiny. Nevertheless, it declared itself to be non-political and claimed it wished to emulate Booker T. Washington and, quote, establish a Tuskegee in Jamaica, end quote. However, the UNIA manifesto included amongst its aims, establishing, quote, a universal confederacy amongst the race, end quote, as well as promoting, quote, racial pride and love, end quote, developing education, commercial enterprises, and, quote, conscientious Christian worship, end quote, as well as assisting in the, quote, civilizing of backward tribes in Africa, end quote. It was formed, quote, in view of the universal disunity existing amongst the people of the Negro or African race and the apparent danger which must follow the continuance of such a spirit, end quote. Garvey explained that wherever he had traveled, quote, I saw the injustice done to my race because it was black, end quote. He had then been inspired by Booker T. Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery, and whilst he was in London, immediately before returning to Jamaica in 1914, quote, his doom of being a race leader, end quote, dawned on him. According to his own account, quote, I asked, where is the black man's government? Where is his king and his kingdom? Where is his president, his country, and his ambassador, his army, his navy, his men of big affairs? I could not find them, and then I declared, I will help to make them. Garvey's approach was influenced not only by his initial admiration for Booker T. Washington and his sojourn in Britain and Central America, but also by his upbringing in Jamaica, or the 1865 Morant Bay Rebellion and demands for self-government were still a living memory. Garvey was also influenced by J. Robert Love, publisher of The Advocate, a Jamaican newspaper, which like others in the Caribbean and African colonies, as well as elsewhere, championed a pan-African approach and was concerned about the, quote, destiny of the Negro race and, quote, Africa for the Africans. End quote. Love publicized the 1900 Pan-African Conference and worked with Sylvester Williams when he visited Jamaica to organize a branch of the Pan-African Association. By the time he had reached London in 1913, Garvey was adamant that those from the Caribbean, rather than those from the United States, would be the instruments of uniting a scattered race who, before the close of many centuries, will found an empire on which the sun shall shine as it shines on the empire of the north today. However, as has been pointed out, Pan-African influences on Garvey would have been manifold and certainly included Blyden, 
Horton, and Casely Hayford, as well as many others. Garvey re-established the UNIA in New York in 1916, where it soon attracted thousands of adherents, first throughout the United States, and soon after internationally. By 1919, he had traveled widely and established about 30 branches in different American cities. At its height, the UNIA's worldwide membership has been estimated at over 2 million, but no precise figures exist. Undoubtedly, it was the largest political movement of Africans during the 20th century, embracing not just a few intellectuals, but the masses both on the African continent and throughout the diaspora. The organization's newspaper, Negro World, launched in 1918, preached an anti-colonial message, Africa for the Africans at home and abroad, challenged notions of white supremacy and extolled the greatness of Africans and of Africa's history. Like his 19th century predecessors, Garvey spoke of the greatness of Egypt and an African origin of civilization. The Negro world circulated, often illegally, throughout colonial Africa and the Caribbean, indeed throughout the diaspora. The UNIA established women's and children's organizations and promoted commercial ventures of many kinds, the most well-known being the ill-fated Black Star shipping line, which aimed to aid commercial ties between West Africa, the Caribbean, and the United States, which was first established in 1919. There was also a universal millinery store and a universal steam laundry, as well as several grocery stores and restaurants. The UNIA's Declaration of Rights of the Negro Peoples of the World, launched at the first international convention of the Negro Peoples of the World, held in New York in 1920, demanded self-determination for those of African descent wherever they form a community amongst themselves. The Declaration condemned anti-African racism and defended, quote, the inherent right of the Negro to possess himself of Africa and the necessity of Negro nationalism, political power, and control. The UNIA at first even refused to recognize the League of Nations because it, quote, seeks to deprive Negroes of their liberty, end quote. It also imagined a, quote, Negro independent nation on the continent of Africa to which those in the diaspora could return. The UNIA increasingly became identified, certainly by its detractors, with the notion of a return to Africa, which had been such a controversial part of African-American pan-Africanist thinking in the 19th century. In his philosophy and opinions, first published in 1923, Garvey concluded, quote, The future of the Negro outside of Africa spells ruin and disaster, end quote. In his view, the solution for those in the diaspora would be brought about by, quote, redeeming our motherland Africa from the hands of alien exploiters and by establishing there, quote, a government, a nation of our own, strong enough to lend protection to the members of our race scattered all over the world. You've mentioned a couple of key names. You mentioned... Garvey, Du Bois, Nkrumah, Blyden, Henry Sylvester Williams. If one is a student of 
Pan-African studies, in your estimation, who are the figures that must be known and must be appreciated and must be understood? Well, I think you've mentioned, you've mentioned many of them already. So those are many of the key figures. Um, du Bois, as I've said, because he was involved in leading the work to, to develop and to establish that Congress movement and to hold Congresses in 1919, 21, 23, and 27, mainly in Europe, the, the uh, final one in 1927 uh, in New York. So he was very important in, in kind of keeping the torch lit. And his was a kind of, we could say, a kind of intellectual Pan-Africanism in, in the sense that he, he operated amongst others like him who were generally intellectuals, I, I suppose one, one would call them. And their Pan-Africanism at that time was largely um, reformist, generally speaking. It was concerned with essentially lobbying the colonial powers and others that they should be more concerned about the fate of Africans globally or demanding reforms within the colonial system or demanding that Africans had more of a role in governance and in determining their own affairs and so on. That was the kind of nature of their um, approach, generally speaking. Uh, Garvey was different in that his was a much more, the ideas, the, the difference in ideas between Garvey and Du Bois is not, in some ways, not that great. But um, in terms of the focus of his activities, Garvey was much more a man of the, the masses. His influence was much more widespread. Um, again, throughout Africa, the Caribbean, Europe, the Americas, he revived many of the ideas of the 19th century, um, the slogan Africa for the Africans, which Martin Delaney had uh, championed and Garvey added at home and abroad. He was very much concerned with, um, I suppose what we'd call uh, cultural issues and opposing Eurocentrism, as we'd call it today, by re reminding people that, as others had in the 19th century, of African history, Africa's past greatness, the importance of ancient Egypt, etc. Um, so that was one aspect of Ogawa's kind of cultural concerns that he had. And he was a, a race man, as they would have said at the time, and concerned with the upliftment of the race. I suppose in the 19th century, people would have talked about the vindication of the race. In other words, defending the humanity of Africans from anti-African racism. So Garvey kind of encapsulated all of that. At the same time, he had a sort of economic dimension that, um, you know, Africans should help themselves through setting up economic enterprises, trading enterprises. You know, he established the Black Star Line to try and establish trade links between Africa and the Americas. 
Um, so he was an important figure in that he, he presented a kind of vision, a hope of future liberation and future upliftment and, and greatness. And of course, the slogan Africa for the Africans has always resonated in Africa and been seen essentially as a kind of anti-colonial slogan. And Garvey was a great propagandist. He had his own newspaper and so on. So his ideas spread. Many people heard of him. Many people liked his approach. Just as today, many people are encouraged by, I suppose, what we might call, what we used to call cultural nationalism. Um, being proud of who you are, of your Africanness, of various aspects of African culture, history, and so on. I think people are also inspired too by what I might call practical Pan-Africanism. I mean, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to actually be about it. Yeah. And yes, I mean, these are things that, you know, can be done, as it were, whether that even on the cultural front, it's, it's a it's a doing of things as well as on the economic front. Whereas Du Bois is more of a, we can say, of a, an agitator. One thinks of his, you know, his approach to other things within, within the US. But I mean, they, they, in some ways, what they're concerned with operates in tandem to some degree um, and has, has an impact. Um, and of course, there are other trends emerging during, during this period as well. So anyway, Garvey is certainly one of those figures. And of course, Garvey has a particular significance in his own country, uh, in Jamaica, or country of origin, Jamaica, and his, his thinking, his philosophy also gave rise to or strongly influenced the later Rastafarian movement, which I suppose is, a, is again a stream of Pan-Africanism in in some some ways so he's important then there are others i i suppose continuing on the sort of cultural front there's the whole a whole other stream of pan-africanism is that concern with negritude uh, which is a sort of francophone but wider than francophone trend of pan-africanism because it also has influence in the lucifone world as well certainly in places like Brazil, as well as Spanish speaking, some Spanish speaking countries in the Caribbean. And there you have people like Cesar, Leopold Senghor and others who are, were important writers. Then there are others like the Nadal sisters, Paulette Nadal, uh, Jeanne Nadal, who were because very often people talk again, talk about the fathers of negritude, but not the mothers. But the Nadal sisters were very important. Jeanne Nadal is the person who gave rise to the term black internationalism, uh, which is so beloved by you guys in the US. Although she, she used it to refer to, to Pan-Africanism, clearly. But they were important in that they uh, linked various developments in the US, like the so-called Harlem Renaissance, with wider Pan-African concerns, and particularly uh, those concerned those concerned with opposing Eurocentrism, 
and defending the cultures of Africa and the Caribbean, especially, I suppose, in a kind of literary way. They were very important in bringing people together. And I mean, Paulette Nadal in particular was a was an activist throughout the 1920s, 1930s and beyond. So they're, they're very important uh, that people should should know about. Then we have people like George Padmore, who represents another important stream of Pan-Africanism in the 1920s and 30s, which was a kind of Marxist or communist stream of Pan-Africanism, which said, well, all this talk about, you know, demanding reforms and celebrating culture is all very well, but what we actually need is liberation. And for liberation, we need to organize and particularly we need to organize amongst those who are the wealth producers, uh, the majority of people and organize in order to end these systems which oppress us, whether those were colonial systems or more broadly, the, the capital centered system internationally. So that trend was very important. And even though Padmore later parted company with the communist movement as such, that his sort of Marxist orientation and that of others was very, very important. And particularly one can see it in the famous 1945 Pan-African Congress, which took place in Britain, of course, in Manchester, and also involved the activities of Kwame Nkrumah, another of those figures that you mentioned and encapsulated in the proceedings and declarations of that Congress, you get a very radical, radically orientated Pan-Africanism, which is very different from that of Du Bois, different from that of Garvey, different from what preceded it in that regard. And in fact, Padmore said to, to Du Bois that, you know, we have to have a Congress which is based on the masses of the people the workers and the farmers, they're the majority, they're the ones who are going to change things. We don't, we no longer want professors and lawyers and these sort of people um, telling everybody what to do. The Manchester Pan-African Congress held in October 1945 has been described as the zenith of the Pan-African movement and perhaps the most important of all the Pan-African meetings held outside the African continent. Kwame Nkrumah, newly arrived from the United States, was included as one of the main organizers, and he later referred to it as, quote, a tremendous success, where both capitalists and reformist solutions to the African problems were rejected. Nkrumah argued that in contrast to previous Congresses, quote, the delegates who attended were practical men of action, end quote. Certainly, it was attended by key figures, the majority originating on the African continent, such as Obafemi Owolowo, Jaja Wachuku, Hastings Banda, Jomo Kenyatta, and Nkrumah, who would play a key role in subsequent anti-colonial struggles in Africa, as well as leading Pan-Africanists, such as Amy Ashwood Garvey, Du Bois, Padmore, McConan, Robert Broadhurst, and trade unionists, such as Wallace Johnson, Ken Hill, and Rupert Gittins. The Congress held separate sessions on the color problem in Britain, imperialism in North and West Africa, oppression in South Africa, 
the East African picture, Ethiopia and the Black Republics, and the problem in the Caribbean. In addition, Amy Ashwood Garvey reminded the predominantly male delegates that, quote, for some reason, very little has been said about the black woman who has been shunted into the social background to be a childbearer, end quote. The overall political orientation of the Congress was summed up in two resolutions. The first, the challenge to the colonial powers, condemned imperialism, demanded independence, and for the first time argued that it might be necessary to, quote, appeal to force to achieve freedom, end quote. The second, a declaration to the colonial workers, farmers, and intellectuals affirmed the right to be free from foreign domination and determined that the attainment of political power was, quote, the first step to complete social, economic, and political emancipation, end quote. It concluded, quote, today there is only one road to effective action, the organization of the masses. And in that organization, the educated colonials must join, end quote. A third important document was a memorandum to the U.N., drafted by Du Bois, which demanded the participation of designated representatives of the African colonial peoples within the deliberations of the U.N. It was supported by nearly 40 organizations in the U.S., Caribbean, Africa, and Europe, including the National Council of Negro Women, the CAA, the PAF, the LCP, the National Council of Nigeria and the Cameroons, the Non-European Unity Committee of South Africa, the Caribbean Labor Congress, and the Kenya African Union. So that orientation, that kind of mass-based orientation, I think was very important. The other aspect of the Manchester Congress, which I always think of as kind of crystallizing and summing up the entire period, if you like, from 1927 onwards, reflecting on the experience of globally of African struggles for liberation was to say, first of all, it's the masses of the people who are important. Secondly, to oppose the imposition of what they called alien political institutions, or what today we'd probably call multi-party democracy, so-called. Anyway, the systems of the big powers, the Eurocentric political systems. So they opposed that. They said, this is just an imposition. These are not African institutions. So that was very important. And then thirdly, they, they condemned what they called the monopoly of capital or a capital-centered system. And said so this has also been imposed on Africans and is not in our interests and we should get rid of it. And of course, they also uh, opposed and condemned the colonial boundaries in Africa. So they set out a sort of vision of what liberation liberation would look like and how we would get it or how they would get it saying well it's by organizing the masses of the people by using violence and force if necessary and so on so padmore was very important within that there were others key people like isaac wallace johnson of course amy ashwood garvey the first wife of marcus garvey was also involved in organizing that congress and then kwame Nkrumah was also a key figure in that. So that was an important moment coming at the end of the Second World War when 
Africans globally were looking for a new world. People had given their lives, the war ostensibly fought against fascism and all this kind of thing. And the world had gone through a change. The old colonial powers weakened, the two new superpowers anti-colonial for their own reasons, differing reasons. So people look forward to a different world. And I suppose from that Congress, we we get very rapid change, particularly on the African continent, in which Nkrumah plays a key role. And one of his key roles is in a way to kind of implement some of the ideas of the Manchester Congress in terms of organizing amongst the people, you know, using strikes and boycotts and so on. But also his concern that, or his famous comment that the liberation of Ghana as it became was meaningless without the liberation of the entire continent and so on. So we get a shift in Pan-Africanism as well from the diaspora kind of being the sort of major center of activity and the African continent being significant but a bit peripheral we get a shift where the African continent becomes much more central and the diaspora perhaps a little bit less significant. So that's important. If we look at some of the, again, some of the key Pan-Africanists of the post-war period, I suppose people like Malcolm X, for example, who was very much influenced by what was going on in the African continent and continually in his speeches, even during his time with the Nation of Islam, is always talking about Africa what's going on in Africa. And of course, at the end of his political life becomes much more sort of clearly orientated as a, a Pan-Africanist, we can say, and, is, and an internationalist as well. In the last two years of his life, following his separation from the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X began to develop a new political philosophy that placed African-American liberation in the context of wider Pan-African and global struggles. Malcolm X visited several African countries, including Ghana, Liberia, Egypt, Senegal, Morocco, Algeria, and Nigeria during April to May 1964, and upon his return to the U.S., formed the Organization of African American Unity. He subsequently made an additional extensive five-month tour of the African continent, in the second half of 1964, during which he met Nasser, Nyere, Kenyatta, Sekoture, Azikiwe, Nkrumah, and other African leaders. It was during his time in Africa in 1964 that Malcolm X became convinced that it was, quote, time for all Afro-Americans to join the world's Pan-Africanists, and that they philosophically and culturally, quote, needed to return to Africa to help develop a working unity the framework of Pan-Africanism. One aspect of Malcolm X's Pan-Africanism was his view that independent African nations should help bring the oppression of African Americans before the United Nations. Another, the development of his view that the government of the United States and its political system, the oppressor of African Americans, was also the oppressor of those in the African continent. During his African sojourn, Malcolm X met with Nkrumah, related that they, quote, agreed that Pan-Africanism was the key to the problems of those of African heritage. And the other 
very important aspect of the Manchester Congress, which I momentarily omitted, was its internationalism. That although it was a Congress concerned with Africans globally, Africa, the Caribbean, the US, it was concerned with the liberation of, of all. Even in the, the Congress Hall, it had the slogan, oppressed people of all countries unite. You know, it was opposed to anti-Semitism. It was for the rights of people in Britain. Uh, in, in fact, the Congress was conceived partly as a, a way of trying to work with the sort of working class in Britain towards future projects in Africa. So anyway, it had this broad internationalist perspective. So that that is, I think, very important and uh, introduced, as it were, uh, um, well, not introduced, but consolidated that trends, that stream within Pan-Africanism. And as I say, Malcolm X, who, again, is a very important figure, I would say, um, we see him astride these different streams. You know, he, he starts off perhaps in a more Garveyite stream, and then by the end, he's gone into the more internationalist stream. That's not to say there wasn't some internationalism in Garvey as well, but anyway. So Malcolm X is important and Krumah's important, and Krumah's important for his, as I say, his Pan-African vision, his view that it was important that Ghana and the liberation of Ghana was just part of the liberation of the continent and its 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 liberation had to serve the liberation of the continent. And of course, he organizes two very important conferences. The first Pan-African conference is really in 1958, the first conference of independent African states and the All-African Peoples Conference, which were held in Accra, which brought people together from the continent as well as from the diaspora to discuss the liberation of Africa. And those developments also contributed to some years later, whatever that is, five years later, the founding of the Organization of African Unity. In June 1960, the second conference of independent African states was held in Addis Ababa. This group now included the provisional government of Algeria, Somalia, Guinea, Cameroon, Nigeria, Togo, and Congo, although the latter two did not attend. The representative of Ghana made clear that country's commitment to a political union of African states, but accepted that a start might be made with an association based on economic or cultural cooperation. There was a minority view, however, and was most strongly opposed by Nigeria. The representative of that country asserted that it too wished to promote Pan-Africanism as, quote, the only solution to our problems in Africa, end quote, but believed that the idea of forming a union of African states is premature. Nigeria, like Liberia, was not prepared to surrender its sovereignty in a political union. The difference between the approaches of Ghana and Nigeria highlighted key differences which divided the African states and were based as much on the pressures exerted on them by former colonial masters as by political rivalries, border disputes, and other differences. The Nigerian representative had famously warned that, quote, 
If anybody makes the mistake of feeling that he is a messiah who has got a mission to lead Africa, the whole purpose of Pan-Africanism will, I fear, be defeated. End quote. However, even this apparently veiled personal attack on Nkrumah reflected what has come to be seen as a split between radical and conservative African governments. The Congo crisis also erupted in 1960. It was engineered by the governments of the United States, Belgium, and others to prevent that country's genuine independence and culminated in the death of the Congo's first elected prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. He had proclaimed the country's independence from Belgium, quote, a decisive step toward the liberation of the whole African continent, end quote. But his aspirations were betrayed by the big powers and the UN. Only a few weeks after independence, an army mutiny and the secession of the mineral-rich Katanga province were engineered by foreign powers and the Congo entered a state of near-anarchy, while the same foreign powers led by the U.S., labeled Lumumba pro-communist. Lumumba called for UN intervention, but the military forces that were sent, including those of African countries, were unable to save him or the Congo. His secret assassination, carried out with the support of the U.S. and Belgian governments in 1961, was condemned throughout Africa and beyond, as he and the Congo had come to symbolize African unity and independence was an especially major blow for Nkrumah, who at the height of the crisis had signed a secret agreement with Lumumba to establish a union of African states. Nkrumah had sent Ghana's troops to aid Lumumba, and the crisis strengthened his view that there was a need for a pan-African army, an African, quote, combined high command, end quote, and joint political action by African governments to avoid the evils of neocolonialism, balkanization, disunity, and secession. In December 1960, many of the Francophone African governments that remained closest to France signed the Brazzaville Declaration, which, amongst other things, committed them to increase economic cooperation. A few months later, in July 1961, Ghana, Guinea, and Mali established a union of African states and presented as, quote, the nucleus of the United States of Africa, end quote. The founders pledged themselves to pool their resources and to harmonize their domestic and foreign policy. They also condemned the Brazzaville group and all groups based on the languages of the colonial powers as likely to strengthen neocolonialism and called on those states to follow a higher and more healthy conception of African unity. Another response to the Brazzaville group was the convening of a conference in Casablanca by Morocco in January 1961. Ghana, Guinea, Mali, Libya, the United Arab Republic, and the provisional government of Algeria were represented. The Brazzaville group was not invited, although Nigeria, Tunisia, Ethiopia, Liberia, Sudan, Somalia, and Togo were, but declined to attend. On many questions, there was no initial unanimity, but the states eventually signed the Casablanca Charter, with all but Libya also signing a separate protocol. The response to Casablanca was a conference in Monrovia, Liberia in May 1961 convened by Senegal, Togo, Nigeria, Ivory Coast, and Cameroon. They were joined by the Brazzaville group, Somalia, Sierra Leone, Ethiopia, Libya, and Tunisia 
although the latter only had observer status. The Monrovia Conference was the largest ever gathering of independent African states, including most Anglophone and Francophone countries, despite the absence of the invited Casablanca group. It focused not only on the question of African unity, but also on which countries might play a leadership role, as well as on common issues of interest, such as South Africa, Angola, the Congo, Algeria, and nuclear tests in Africa. In regard to Africa's unity, the conference condemned outside subversive action by neighboring states, agreed on the need for cooperation and the non-acceptance of any leadership. It was especially concerned that some states were encouraging dissidents and subversive activities directed against other states, a veiled criticism of Nkrumah, and concluded that the African unity desired is, quote, not the political integration of sovereign African states, but unity of aspirations and of action considered from the point of view of African social solidarity and political identity. The Monrovia Conference led to a major war of words between the press in Ghana and Nigeria. This highlighted the fears of the former that the conference participants were too firmly under the influence of the big powers and the fears of the latter that Nkrumah wished to dominate. The gap between the two groups was bridged by Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, who made a major intervention in January 1962. He lamented the absence of some states, welcomed economic cooperation, but also stressed the necessity of some form of political unity. He asserted that, quote, Ethiopia considers herself a member of one group only, the African group. Although the words of Haile Selassie were a significant factor in encouraging unity amongst African states, it was also the work of Nkrumah and others that created the conditions for the conference in Addis Ababa in 1963 and the founding of the Organization of African Unity. In his book, Africa Must Unite, published in 1963, Nkrumah presented his view that there was no great divide between the aims of the various groups, only a difference of approach. He outlined the benefit of an African common market and other forms of economic integration to avoid competition, pool resources and aid development, as well as to combat the neocolonialism of the European common market, which was then seeking to dominate the African continent. Indeed, neocolonialism and balkanization were, according to Nkrumah, the biggest dangers facing Africa against which unity was essential. Giving the example of the United States, the USSR, Canada, and other states, he attempted to show the benefits of unitary and continental governments. Nkrumah sent his ambassadors to all of Africa's independent states to distribute the book and lobby governments to unite and develop common approaches to foreign policy, economic planning and currency, as well as security and defense. He concluded the book with the following words. Here is a challenge which destiny has thrown out to the leaders of Africa. It is for us to grasp what is a golden opportunity to prove that the genius of the African people can surmount the separatist tendencies and sovereign nationhood by coming together speedily for the sake of Africa's greater glory and infinite well-being into a union of African states. As if to add further weight to his words, Nkrumah also made a speech at the Addis Ababa conference in which he summarized the book, quote, We must unite now or perish, 
and concluded by proposing a committee of foreign ministers be immediately empowered to establish a constitution, establish a commission to work out plans for continental economic and industrial development, and common African citizenship. I'm just kind of giving a sort of very narrow snapshot of things because, you know, there's a whole Pan-African tradition in Brazil and in South America and in Caribbean, as well as in Britain, France, Europe, and so on. But these are definitely some of the key figures in, in this period. I mean, I suppose two immediately come to mind. One is Franz Fanon, and the other is Amical Cabral. And then there are other more sort of cultural figures like Sheikh Anto Diop. Anyway, there's people one, one could talk about depending on... This, this conversation could literally be a week or a month because there's so much there. Well, I can't remember how long the book took me to write, probably about three years. So, yeah, there. But I mean, what, all, what this should demonstrate is that this Pan-Africanist orientation, this concern, not just with the fate of Africans in London or New York or Britain or the US or Nigeria, but that the challenges facing Africans are global challenges or international challenges. And therefore, there's the necessity to organize on that basis. And also with the perspective that if there is an advance in one place, that is an advance for everybody. That in other words, the kind of fate of Africans in different parts of the world is, is connected. I mean, more recently, we have, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, which is one of the biggest, probably biggest anti-racist movement in British history. Would you call that a pan-African movement? I would say that it has elements of that. Of course, it's complicated because clearly it was a, a movement in which many people were involved, not just Africans or people of African heritage. And it was a sort of broad anti-racist movement but it, it does have some sort of characteristics of being a pan-african movement in a way but supported by others and the, and then in the history of pan-africanism there are other examples of that i mean the manchester congress was a bit like that it was an african-led event african delegates but it was supported by other people so um i mean i wouldn't be sectarian about it and say that it is a you know a pan a purely pan-african manifestation but it has some elements i think of that and the way that it's the impact of it is is anyway is is quite profound in may 2013 the african union the organization of all african states held its 20th summit 50 years after the founding of its predecessor, the Organization of African Unity, in May 1963. The AU, which was barely 10 years old, adopted the theme of Pan-Africanism and African Renaissance for the anniversary summit. A special AU publication explained that, quote, Pan-Africanism is an ideology and movement that encouraged the solidarity of Africans worldwide. 
It is based on the belief that unity is vital to economic, social, and political progress and aims to unify and uplift people of African descent. The ideology asserts that the fates of all African peoples and countries are intertwined. At its core, Pan-Africanism is, quote, a belief that African peoples, both on the continent and in the diaspora, share not merely a common history, but a common destiny, end quote. Nothing could exemplify this belief better than the AU itself, an organization with a membership that not only includes 53 out of the 54 African states, but also the entire African diaspora. The diaspora is designated the, quote, sixth region of the AU and consists of people of African origin living outside the continent, irrespective of their citizenship and nationality, or willing to contribute to the development of the continent and the building of the African Union. The point I think I was getting to was that the, the problems, the challenges which face which face people of African heritage, and of course one could say the challenges which face people of Africa and African heritage are problems of the world. They're not only that they, they, they there's not that only Africans face them. They're uh, global problems which everybody should be concerned about and which have an impact on everybody. But, but historically, um, the, the Africans organizing to deal with those problems is and has been significant. Um, I mean, to go back to the 18th century, Equiano was a leading member of the Sons of Africa, but he was also a, I don't know if he was a leading member, but he was also a member of the London Corresponding Society. And the London Corresponding Society was a, a radical organization of, of workers. In fact, one of the first radical political organizations demanding rights for working people in Britain at a time when they didn't have the vote or any other rights for that matter. And the secretary of the London Correspondence Society was a man called Thomas Hardy. And Equiano actually lived with Thomas Hardy and his wife for a while. And Thomas Hardy wrote to somebody, he said, I understand that you are something like you are a supporter of the rights of Africans. He said, I assume from this that you're also a supporter of the, the rights of working people generally, because we have the view that if you're for the rights of Africans, you must be for the rights of the workers. And if you're for the rights of the workers, you must be for the rights of Africans. So this was incredibly advanced politics, which some people <laughs> haven't grasped this today. But in the 18th century London, they clearly understood this. So anyway, the point being that there's no, you know, I wrote a book called Pan-Africanism and Communism, which was some people raised their eyebrows of just what have these things got to do with each other. But of course, they've got to do their concern with liberation then they must there must be a connection between them so anyway so pan-africanism has that quality about it that yes it's africa centered but it's not only concerned with that liberation because you could say the most uh, advanced stream of thinking within pan-africanism recognizes that you know these are sort of systemic 
problems and challenges and that system which gives rise to these problems needs to be needs to be dealt with so let's talk about you for a second beyond this particular book how did you come to a appreciation and love for pan-africanism well i i suppose i my story is a sort of reflection of some of the things i've spoken about in the sense that like many young people um, of African heritage growing up in Britain when I did the first thing or not not the first thing but one thing that struck me about the world at a very young age was that there was racism in it and I think by the time I became a teenager that was quite a big challenge or burden in my life and when I was about a young teenager, probably about 13. I should explain that I grew up actually not very far from London, but far enough from London to be in the middle of nowhere, as it were. So I grew up in an environment where there weren't many people that looked like me. In fact, there were hardly any people that looked like me. So the only way I could, the way that I chose to deal with the problems of racism was to kind of investigate it. Sounds like a very sort of intellectual thing to do, but anyway, that's. I started to try and read and read anything and everything to do with black people, history, literature, anything I could get hold of. So I suppose that was my earliest connection with what might broadly be called. Pan-Africanism, I began to be aware that there was a, you know, there was some kind of thinking in the world and some kind of, there were political organizations that were concerned with the same kinds of things that I was concerned with, that I didn't, I had, didn't have a very profound understanding of them. And then later, after I, after I went to university, I came in contact with some Pan-African organizations in, in Britain. I suppose particularly the Black Liberation Front, which a friend of mine was involved in. And I also came in contact with other aspects of Pan-Africanism. I read a bit of, you know, Stokely Carmichael and various things, Fanon as well, I think, at that stage. So I was kind of aware of all of that. And some of it made sense to me and some of it didn't. And some of it helped me to understand the world and some of it didn't and then around the same time i came into contact with the communist movement and i would say that generally that helped me to understand the world much more so i was involved in all of those kinds of things then i think quite a young age i read quite an important book for me which is called black bolshevik that you're probably familiar with by Harry Haywood. Um, so that was quite an important text for me in, in, in that it demonstrated that there was a kind of possibility of reconciling these two political traditions. But anyway, that there, there was, there had been, certainly, even if there wasn't at that time, there, there, these two traditions were interconnected in many ways. And then I, for a time I was involved with 
organizations like Black Liberation Front and so on. But I would say that my real sort of interest in it as a historian was really just due to due to studying history, really. And to go back to my formative years, as I said, as a teenager, I began to investigate everything. And one of the main things I investigated was history, because history was the subject that I loved the most. And I decided at that young age that I would study African history with the aim of teaching it. Um, anyway, without going, going into the whole story, I eventually got the opportunity to do some research. And the research I did was based on looking at essentially the political activities of Africans in Britain, West Africans in Britain. But as I began to study this, this history of West Africans in Britain, the, the, well, two things emerged. One, the West Africans in Britain organise as West Africans in a kind of pan-African formation very often. And secondly, that they organised alongside other Africans, other people of African heritage from the Caribbean and so on. So in studying these African students, I began to learn more and more about other organizations in Britain. And of course, these organizations in Britain were in contact with other organizations in Africa, in the Caribbean, in the US, in Brazil. And so in writing about one, I began to write about others. I mean, that's the essence, really what, ha what happened. And it, it's always something, it's something that's interested me from the perspective of, okay, from my own political perspective in a way as to what historically has been useful. Where have there been victories? Where have there been successes? Where have there been people who have taken stands which have been important and assisted in the liberation, the enlightenment, the empowerment, and so on. So that's essentially what I look at. And so that led me to, yeah, to begin writing stuff on Pan-Africanism. <laughs> People always say that I'm a sort of writer on Pan-Africanism, which I, I don't think of myself in that way. But I suppose, as nearly every book has a title that's Pan-African in it, it's not surprising. <laughs> but I don't really think of myself in that way. But yeah, that's how um that's how it's 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 come about any thoughts about what book is next for you the current i'm actually working on you know three books at the moment but they're in different stages the book i've just written is a history of african and caribbean people in britain going back to to the earliest times up until Black Lives Matter, essentially. So it's a broad survey, essentially just trying to summarize what's the latest research, what's been written, and to produce something that people can, you know, refer to. So that's that's been published by Penguin. That should come out hopefully next this time next year, next September, hopefully. I'm working on also working on a book of documents, again, British based, of we could say black writers on Britain, on their experiences in Britain. But that includes 
people from Africa, the Caribbean, British based, US people who visited, people like Fred, Fred Douglas, Linda Brent, a whole range of mainly 18th and 19th century figures who wrote about their experiences here. That's, um, I think it will come out next year, published by Macmillan. And then, then hopefully there will be a book which will emerge, an anthology, we can call it, which will emerge from the conference that we're holding next week on the history of African and Caribbean people in Britain. And the aim of that conference, a lot of the work I do now is to encourage young historians, particularly those of African and Caribbean heritage here, to involve themselves with history, to become historians, to write about history, to present things about history. Um, in Britain, we have a sort of dearth of black historians. There are very, very few. I mean, I was the first, I was the first person of African heritage I think, to become a professor of history, a full professor here. Um, but, but even, you know, academic historians, we have very few and even non-academic historians, we don't have very many. So in the last five or so, six years in particular, I've tried to do some work to, to change that situation. So the conference is one aspect of that. And hopefully we'll have a book showcasing the work of these young and emerging historians, most from Britain. I think we have one who's studying in the US. Um, so then, so then the next book, the next sort of big book is probably going to be on the period of the Cold War. And its focus will be on the anti-colonial struggle and the channeling of that anti-colonial struggle by the, probably in particular by Britain, because I think otherwise it will be just be too much to deal with. So it, it will look at sort of pan-African activity and the problems which the Cold War created for that activity and for the liberation of Africa and Africans. That, that's the essence of it. So it will focus on Africa, on Britain, on maybe some other places as well. And probably the focus on Britain's former colonies in Africa. But yeah, I have to work on it a bit more. But that's the, that's the intention. Last question for you. What do you feel is the fruit of Pan-Africanism and what are your thoughts about Pan-Africanism as it exists today? I think that, um, I mean, we could say that one of the fruits, if we, I mean, again, it's difficult to, to perhaps to generalize, but if we look at the African continent, say, one of the fruits is, is clearly that old style colonialism no longer exists that you know you could generally say that africa has liberated itself from formal colonial rule and largely from formal settler um, colonial rule and that is due to yeah to kind of pan-african struggles to africans in the continent the diaspora working together as well as with others to achieve that liberation, some of it through the founding of the OAU, the 
that's Africa Liberation Committee, the work of the frontline states, the work of, you know, all of this has created, is an advance, is a victory. However, it's not a total victory, as probably anyone, anybody could see, that there are new forms of colonialism which are just as oppressive as the old forms and the continent still needs to reckon with all those vestiges and legacies of colonialism and so on. And again, that comes down to these kind of systemic problems. The, you know, we talked about Kwame Nkrumah and Krumah's maxim was seek ye first the political kingdom and all else will be rendered unto you as the Bible says, but the question is whose political kingdom are you seeking? If you seek the political kingdom of your enemies, what history shows is you can't just take hold of it and expect it to work in your interests. And again, going back to 1945, they kind of clearly identified that, that the institutions, the capital-centered economy, the boundaries, all of these things are colonial impositions and they have to be got rid of so in a way the the answer lies within the history of pan-africanism that the important thing is organizing amongst the people organizing with a very definite orientation in unity with people in other countries and so on so that is the um that, that struggle still exists in africa it still exists in the Caribbean. It still exists in Britain, the US and other countries where, yes, there are some advances and those advances have come about because people have got together and organized, um, but it hasn't, um, the problems haven't been resolved because the, the, the system which gave rise to these problems is still in, in place and as, I say history shows that that is the great challenge of the 21st century to continue those struggles with that orientation in mind um, that people have to empower themselves and you know become the decision makers and get rid of these eurocentric institutions which not only are not in the interests of Africans, but not in the interests of anybody other than the, uh, you know, the rich and powerful. So I think that's to sort of cut a long story short. That's how I would look at things. Yes, advances, victories, but we also have to learn from history and we can see the challenges in front of us and the need to yeah, the struggle continues um, until, you know, until final victory. Until final victory. March on, we must. Very much so. Very much so. Thank you so much for your time. I really, 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 really appreciate it. And I really, really appreciate the work that you've done over the course of your career. It is significant. It's visible in the books that you've done, but the work that you're doing with the next generation of students and scholars and historians and professors is also significant as well. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. Looking forward to seeing the ripple effect over the years. Thank you. Thank you so much. I look forward to our next conversation.
welcome anytime. Thank you so much. Recollect is a production of Recollect Media. To connect with Professor Adi, you can follow him on Twitter at HakeemAdi1 or visit his website at www.hakeemadi.org. To purchase Pan-Africanism, you can visit Bloomsbury Academic Press at bloomsbury.com or visit our recollection at bookshop.org. To learn more about our other shows and events, including Sky is Black and the Pan-African Food Festival, please visit our website at www.recollect.media. History is not just his story or her story or my story. It is our story. It is with us. It is alive. And it will survive as long as the truth shall live. Never forget, never ever forget who we are.